Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. I'm Mia Friedman and you're listening to No Filter. This is a bonus episode actually of No Filter and it's one that's very close to my heart. If you've never experienced an unhealthy relationship, one where passion and power and control insidiously morphs into abuse, this episode might confuse you, but I still want you to listen. Because even if you're one of the women who has never been through that kind of relationship, is not going through it now, I bet you know someone who has or is. Abusive relationships come in 50 shades. The one most commonly understood is physical abuse. It's a pretty clear line when you're physically harmed by someone who claims to love you. That's what I always told myself, and I knew what that line was. So how did I end up in a relationship with a man who abused me in every other way but with his fists? Looking back, it's still a bit of a mystery to me, to be honest. Like most women, I can't pinpoint when or exactly how the abuse started. Because it's really rare that a relationship begins as abusive. It's usually something that develops really insidiously. And that's the way it was for me after I started dating a guy that I'd known for a little while. It was a relationship that would come to define me in the sense that it made me see what I would never, ever accept again. A relationship that, looking back, had every red flag that only became visible to me with hindsight and perspective sometimes years later. I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s, but on paper, I still had all the power. He was the same age as me, but the apartment that we lived in was mine. The car he drove was mine. He didn't even have a job, and I had a great one. And there were so many other things in my favour too. I had a supportive family, close friends, I spoke English, and I was educated. I had so many privileges, and yet... Somehow, he took away all my power and he isolated me from those who cared about me and he turned my life into an everyday nightmare. And he did all of this without ever lifting a finger to me, which is what made it so confusing and insidious. And I think it's why I felt so ashamed. I just couldn't understand how I was in that position. And I did not know how to get out of it. I was stuck there with him for almost two years in hell. My guest in this episode is Moo Balch. Yes, that's her name. It's a nickname that's stuck. And she's worked in the not-for-profit and domestic violence space for years before taking on her current role as Head of Customer Vulnerability at the Commonwealth Bank. She leads a team who deal with customers impacted by all forms of financial abuse, from partners to parents, adult children, siblings. It's an issue that we here at Mamma Mia and I personally share Moo's passion for because Mamma Mia is a purpose-driven company and our core purpose is to make the world a better place for women and girls. And we partnered with Combank to create this campaign called It Was Invisible. 
It was certainly invisible when it was happening to me. I was in a relationship that was emotionally abusive, mentally abusive, and there were aspects of financial abuse in there too. And this is a term that I'd never even heard until recently. And it's one that so many women are victim of, and it's one that we need to much better understand as a society. I started by asking Mu in this conversation what she's seen over the many years that she's been working in the domestic violence sector. I feel incredibly privileged that I got to lead, you know, a really small organisation with a a big voice for five or six years over that period where Australia suddenly got domestic violence and started talking about it. You know, I've worked with people like Rosie Batty and, you know, and some really quite, some really dedicated people within government as well who just wanted, saw the opportunity and really wanted to make a change both at a policy level, but then also just so inspired to work with those frontline services. When I was in my early 20s, I was in an emotionally abusive relationship, but I I didn't know that's what it was because Mm. back then it was the 90s, it was the early 90s, and I knew what physical assault was, but I didn't Mm. know, and that was a line for me, a clear line in my mind and in our relationship, but the fact that this person was you know, demeaning me and um, verbally abusing me and emotionally abusing me. And there were even aspects of financial abuse as well, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. I thought it was just our relationship. I didn't realise that was a thing. How do you think that's changed? Because now emotional abuse um, and verbal abuse, that's something that's much more understood within the context of relationships. Mm, it is. Um, I still think that for many people it's really hard to spot and that's probably um, for a range of reasons. I think um, one of the things that really has shifted in the last five to ten years is that we have started to have an understanding that violence is not just physical um, and that we've also started to understand that there may be relationships that are, you know, emotionally abusive for 40, 50, 60 years where, you know, a partner never, there are never any physical injuries. It's just that fear and the emotional, psychological abuse is what, you know, women and victims, survivors of violence will say is the hardest thing to recover from. And it's um, one of the most frustrating bits because there are no physical, you know, signs mm. of this. Um, you know, you don't, if you can't see physical injuries, well, then um, it can't be proper abuse. I think if we can, if we can do one thing is it's, um, and to really shatter those sort of myths around um, domestic and family violence is to say it's, it's power and control. It's, you know, it's usually one partner misusing power and control over the other. Um, It's living in fear. It's walking on eggshells. It's, wondering about whether you can have that conversation because um, if you do, then, you know, the, your partner might explode. It's that feeling of isolation of being so cut off from any anybody else and it's usually, a you know, a pattern of quite systematic cutting somebody off from friends and family and support people and community, anybody who might be able to actually be a, a supportive person and say, look, I'm a bit worried about you. And I think if we can get that um, conversation going and really understand that well as a community, then, you know, we will we will come a lot further. It can be very hard for people on the outside to understand because I remember in the case of this relationship that I had, I seemed to hold all the power. It was my apartment that I paid the rent for. I had a car, he didn't. I had a job, he didn't. And yet I still felt that I had no power in that relationship and it was still incredibly abusive. Is that a common situation? Yeah. 
It really is. I mean, there is no such thing as a as a typical abuser, but there are certainly some you know types of behaviour that are that are pretty common in relationships. So we see things like you know that often an abuser can be very um, extremely charming, extremely plausible to other people, yeah, very um, charismatic often. Often very charismatic, and you know, you speak to you speak to the majority of victim survivors will say to you, "I didn't realize that I was in an abusive relationship until I got out of it." Yeah, you true. Know? So, yeah, you know, friends and family sort of having those conversations gently and in a supportive way, and saying, "Look, I'm, I'm worried about you. I actually think that this is not okay." It can be such a powerful thing, and knowing that it won't just be that first conversation, or it's unlikely to be that first conversation that somebody will say oh, yeah, something's not quite right. I need to, you know, take steps to to change this situation because often you're feeling incredibly powerless and also probably doubting yourself as well. You know, mm. that sort of gaslighting element of um, thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not as bad as it is or I'm overreacting or this is normal. This is, you know, this is, this is a normal thing that happens in relationships. We don't have, um, you know, we don't do a great job at teaching kids or adults about what healthy relationships are. We, I think we're getting better at talking about what the unhealthy signs are, but we're not good at saying this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is what this is what real, you know, equality of access to to resources and decisions within a partnership looks like. So mm. yeah, it's it's tough when you're sort of measuring yourself up against other things and being told, you know, this is normal, this is just the way that relationships are. What are some of the signs of financial abuse and how does it how is it different to maybe other forms of abuse? Financial or economic abuse is a really interesting one, and it's something again that we haven't talked about in a great amount of depth in the last, you know, until the last sort of three or four years. We know that it occurs. You know, there's a bit of research that's been done that that shows that it occurs in the majority, you know, the vast majority of relationships. So where there is abuse going on, and there are other types of abuse, economic abuse, um, mm. financial abuse is pretty likely to be there, but also it can be quite hidden as well. So. You know, when we talk about economic abuse or financial abuse, we think about, you know, somebody going to work and then coming home and, um, you know, it's a bit of an old-fashioned concept. You know, their, their pay packet for the week is taken away from them and they don't have any access to them. Certainly that is one feature of um, financial abuse and we know that that occurs. But it's also about where you lose or you, your access to um, finances is taken away. So it might be preventing somebody from going to work or it might be forcing them uh, to go go to work, it might be stopping them from going to study so that they can, you know, access work or workplaces. It might be things like, you know, preventing them. Like I think a lot about the case of Lisa Harnham, which you know, I, I don't know if you remember. I do, um, but can you just remind us, people who yeah, do, might not know that it's not that long ago, and and you know, I I, I had the, as I said the privilege of working at Divi New South Wales Domestic Violence New South Wales for a few years, and that. Um, I guess that was one of the cases that really, I think, rocked um, Australia in a way and made us think differently about abuse because Lisa was, you know, um, middle class, articulate. Um, she was beautiful. She was intelligent. She was, um, you know, all of those things that um, Australia didn't think about domestic violence victims. Um and yet she had absolutely no control over her life. You know, she her confidence was worn down. She, you know, she started off as a reasonably confident person. She had a, a good career. You know, she had a job. And gradually her um, self-confidence was worn away to the point where her ex-partner prevented her from going to work, told her that what she could wear. And, you know, this is 
while mm. it seems like a weird link with um, with financial abuse, you know, stopping somebody from um, appearing the way that they want to, dressing in the things that they want to, may be a way of stopping them from going to work or, you know, accessing uh, finances, those sorts of things. And also because so, I had that as well with, with my former partner and also um, deciding what you could buy to wear. Uh, that's part of financial abuse, isn't it? So, so there is that quite a direct link. It's between w- what are you spending your money on? I need to know, and I need to control it. And that's that's a big one. And I think the really interesting thing about financial abuse um, that we are only just starting to really understand is that you know we talk about domestic violence occurring in all relationships, but actually this is one that goes across every single socio demographic group in a way that perhaps others don't. So mm. you know I've had conversations with women who you know on paper they would be more than financially lucrative. They would have you know millions, tens of millions in the bank, and yet actually they have no access to that at all. You know they live in a beautiful house. There are five cars on the driveway. They have people coming in to do things on a daily basis for their family to keep things running. Um, and yet when she, you know, jumps in the car to drop the kids off to schools, he's tracking the number of kilometres on her clock and wants her to account for where she's been, if she's, you know, driven a couple of kilometres over what the usual school run is, those mm-hmm. sorts of behaviour. It's that real, you know, or she says, like, I, I can't, I, yes, I've got, um, you know, 15 credit cards in my wallet, but I don't actually have any access to any money. I can't buy you know, anything that he doesn't know about. So that it can it can manifest in a whole range of different types of scenarios and behaviours, but it's really where somebody is prevented from being able to have access to their money or the you know the money of the the partnership of the family. Mo, is it also about financial privacy, like having someone see every every cent that you've spent? And I imagine that that could sometimes be justified as, oh, you're so terrible with money. Uh, a partner saying that to you and then justifying that as a reason for why they need to have you account for every every dollar you've spent. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, you know, part of the challenge really comes in because in some relationships that might be an absolutely valid arrangement that you have with your partner. You might say, actually, I'm really good at these things and you're really good at these things. So you do those things and I'll do these things. That, that in a, you know, a, in a fully informed consenting relationship is fine. That happening in a relationship where there is power and control and it's a surveillance mechanism or where you are being coerced to provide those access to your bank accounts um, or having to account for um, the money that you're spending, that's where it becomes abusive. And so it's, you know, it, it's not even a fine line. It's it's two very different contexts. I once knew a man who made his wife account for every single purchase she made, even if it was a cup of coffee, she had to enter it into a spreadsheet. And this was in a work situation. And, and when the women around the table heard that, we all said, hang on a second, that's not okay. And he's like, she can buy whatever she wants. I don't care. I don't limit her spending. She just has to put it in the spreadsheet. What would you what would yeah. you say about that? <laughs> I would say it would be really interesting to have a conversation with his partner yeah. <laughs> and see whether that how she feels about the situation. Uh, you know, if that is if that's an arrangement that you've uh, entered into and you say, look, this is the way that we're going to track the finances and, you know, it's a it's a um something that you have agreed to because it works for you, then that's okay. But if it's something that you've been told, this is the best way we're going to do this and so therefore I need you to, then that's where it you know, definitely is blurring into some kind of you know, power and control and, and potentially abusive too. 
You have a really intriguing title in your role with um, Commonwealth Bank. It's Head of Customer Vulnerability. Can you tell me a little bit about how that role came about and what it entails? As I said, I feel like quite a lucky person. So I've had some very interesting jobs over the years. Look, vulnerable, the the vulnerable customer piece at um, the Commonwealth Bank um, comes from a couple of places. Uh, the Banking Royal Commission and the, the ABA, the Australian Banking Association, did a whole lot of work um, looking at the way that banks and financial institutions interact with, with customers who are impacted by some sort of vulnerability. And so the Banking Code of Practice that was released last year now has, you know, quite strong, not just guidance, but actually strong regulation around the Mm. way that um, banks need to provide support, provide extra care to customers who are experiencing vulnerability, whether it's temporary vulnerability or whether it's, you know, for some people, um, vulnerability might be intergenerational. There's Mm. a whole range of different things that may impact on a person's ability to... um, to interact with their financial institution and other institutions as well. And so really I think a lot of the financial institutions and banks have had a good hard look at themselves and thought about how they can do this stuff better. Now the Commonwealth Bank obviously is, you know, one of Australia's largest institutions, has been doing work in the space of domestic and family violence for some time. You know, I I have worked pretty closely with a, a few of the people who are now my colleague. And, you know, I know that with the previous CEO and the CEO now that there has been a really strong commitment Commonwealth Bank to be part of the movement to end violence against women. And that's been mm-hmm. something that we have worked together on for some time now. And I think, you know, as we start to talk about financial abuse and as we start to think about moving the issue of domestic violence out of the shadows and out of that sort of something that just happens in people's homes and so we don't talk about it, you know, institutions, small and large businesses, governments, all sorts of non-traditional places that never really would have had anything to do with violence against women before have started to see that they have a real place to, to a real part to play in in addressing this. Mm. And so, you know, as you know, banks banks have an awful amount of that, like awful lot of data about people. And so being able to use those sorts of things for good and to to be able to have conversations with customers that are nuanced, trauma-informed, you know, working from that place of, you know, we have a team, people down in Melbourne who, you know, that every single day they're having conversations with women who are escaping and some men who are escaping domestic violence and being able to have those conversations in a way that comes from a place of belief. And trust. We're there to try and help you establish your financial safety and begin taking some of those steps to whatever the next bit might be for you. Um, I want to ask you about some of the specifics because Mm. we often think of women in abusive relationships approaching shelters, uh, Mm. domestic violence shelters, but not really banks. What are some of the things that a a bank can potentially do for a woman in a domestic violence situation, whether it's financial violence, any kind of violence that she might be experiencing at home? Yeah, I mean, this is this is not a new thing, Mia. This is something that, you know, for many, many years, probably decades, women have been going to banks and talking to them about, you know, some of the most intimate details of their lives. You know, I think customers, it's really interesting. Customers have, you know, a lot of connection often with their local branch, the, you know, the, the people who work in that local branch. And so that can be in some ways really good because it means you can go and share the most intimate details of your life, but it also can can be a challenge as well, you know. So the idea of having a team where our frontline staff can actually refer through to this team so that a person can have a really, you know, it's a confidential conversation. We don't need to know everything about the circumstances of the violence that's occurred. What Mm -hmm. we need to know is enough to be able to say, 
you're our customer, we want to help you. Do you need to set up a new safe account? Are there what's a safe uh, account? Many victims of domestic violence will have had their banking compromised in some shape or form. So whether it's that somebody has got access to their credit card, uh, whether it's that they have all of the all of whether it's that they have their PIN, whether they have details, mm. all of the details of the account. This is their know, partner who would have all of these things, yeah, not just a random, very, yeah. Very, very common. Um, and we see this not just within intimate partnerships, within that kind of intimate partnership violence, but also often within sort of broader community and family settings as well, where there might be several people who are, you know, using those kind of perpetrating that violence. Um, so like potentially a father or a brother. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep, absolutely. Or a son. And so, yeah, or a son or a, or a daughter. Or a daughter um, or a mother. That's right. That's right. Um, but, you know, we know particularly there are some groups of people, particularly, you know, um, older people might not have access to, you know, internet banking and those sorts of things. Mm. They may not have access to the sorts of things that we use every day to keep a track of our finances. Mm. Um, and so making sure that we take extra care with those people that, you know, as I said, we're having that conversation from a place of, okay, what can we do to help? I'm sorry this is happening, but I believe you. What what can I do to support you and how can I help you establish, you know, some financial safety, whatever that looks like for the customer? For, for some people that will be, you know, a really small interaction. It will be as simple as, can you help me out? I just need to change my PIN. Or can you check and tell me if there have been some transactions on my account that I'm aware of? Uh, for other people, they might need a bit more support to be able to do that. So it may be more than one interaction and it might be, look, we'll fix up this thing for you here so that we know that, you know, nobody else is accessing your accounts. And then what happens is we'll, you know, we'll refer you to this branch, go in and have a conversation with this person and they will help you take the next step. And and external referrals as well, you know. I mean, referring, making sure that people know that 1-800-RESPECT, the National Sexual Assault and Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service is there for them and for mm. friends and family members Knowing that you've got the men's referral service, those sorts of places where people say to us, look, I'm worried about the impact of my behaviour on my family. Is there somebody I can have a conversation with? So going that, that just that extra mile to be able to make sure that people are getting the right sort of support. So, Mo, I suppose one of the things about when you're going through something like this, in my experience, is that you feel like you're the only person this has ever happened to. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what you're saying is that don't feel like you're the first person who's ever gone to a bank what needing to set up a secret account like there are processes and systems no one's going to be shocked no one's going to be you know befuddled about what to do that's right you know the commonwealth bank has done a big chunk of work in this area over a number of years and most of our staff are now trained to be able to have that conversation you know we don't need to know as i said all of the intimate details of your life all we need to know is that you need some help and and we can send you through to the right places either internally or somebody on the front line can have that conversation and say look what do we need to do to um mm. to help you get to the next step and you know the financial financial institutions banks are recognizing that this is part of our role as as corporate citizens as well and and being part of a community and being part of a society that says that violence against women is wrong and financial abuse is a part of that. Can you give us an example of a woman whose life's been changed by being able to do this? We had a conversation with, um, with a customer, you know, fairly recently, earlier this year. And, you know, as you said, Mia, most, most women, most victim survivors don't 
don't label themselves as that, don't ever consider themselves to be, you know, a victim survivor of violence. They often think probably that they've had a, a series of unfortunate circumstances that have led to this place. Mm. But we were we were speaking to a woman earlier this year and, and one of our specialists you know, was just talking to her about her circumstances and and started to unravel the conversation. And it turned out that this woman had taken out a series of, um, you know, quite large personal loans in order to pay for her husband's debts. And that's, you know, that's a really common thing we see and hear that all the time. Now, this is something that might not normally get picked up when somebody is going into a, a, a bank or when somebody is having a conversation with, you know, the people that make those loans and they're not going to ask questions about, you know, are you being coerced into this? Is this, are you doing this of your free choice? Is this something that is the right thing for you because, or is it, you know, something that um, you're being pressured into doing? And even if you do ask those questions, you know, often people are not going to be in a position to be able to to answer them honestly. They might be so desperate. They might know that this is the this is the only option for them to be able to get food on the table for their kids that, that evening. And they might have someone standing next to them or listening to their phone conversation or That's reading right. their That's internet right. correspondence. Yeah. Yeah, often. And so as we started to sort of have a further conversation with this woman, you know, we asked a couple of questions and realised that actually there were some pretty severe threats against her family. She'd come over from from Eastern Europe not that long ago. Her family had been forced to, you know, to sell some land in order to pay debts back where she came from. And so they were, you could see all these layers of coercion that were occurring, not just within the, the immediate relationship, but also pressure from family, you know, far away as well. And so we were able to, um, you know, pass that over to some of our colleagues in another part of the bank. And they said, look, this, this is very clearly financial abuse. This woman had been paying off the debts for a really long time. Mm. Um, but had only just realised that it was something that was actually could be considered domestic violence. And so she got through to our team and I'm so happy that we were able to kind of have two or three different conversations with her where we started to unravel some of the complexity of that and eventually we were able to, to write off those debts for her. How do vulnerable women get the ball rolling if perhaps their movements are being supervised and their emails are being read and their phones are being checked? How do they even go about taking the first steps. If you're a Commonwealth Bank customer, hop on our website, combank.com.au forward slash DV. Um, so we have a, a, a page um, which gives information both about how you can um, book a time for one of our community wellbeing specialists to call you in a safe time. But also I would say if you are, you know, if you're banking with any financial institution, go and have a conversation with them and in whichever way is the safest for you, whether it's giving them a call, you know, we know at the moment it can be really difficult to reach out for help. A lot of people are in their homes. They don't have access to to friends or family or those traditional support networks that they have. Find a way to have a conversation with your bank and just say, what is it that you can do for me? Because most banks now have some kind of response, you know, and it may be that your bank can help you with one bit and that they may be able to refer you on to get um, support from local services. The other thing I would say is, you know, reach out to somebody who you trust, you know, and that might be a GP, it might be somebody in your local branch, but it might be a friend or a family member that you know um, is not going to judge you. Just knowing that you are connected to somebody else is so important. That's Moo Bolch there, Head of Customer Vulnerability at the Commonwealth Bank. Oh, if this brought up some things for you, and that conversation brought up some things for me, never will I ask, but why didn't she leave? Because 
When you're on the inside, it's just not always that simple. And if a woman does not have access to any money and if all her financial movements are controlled or supervised, then just leaving is so much more complicated, which is why, you know, I'd never thought about the idea of financial institutions being part of the solution. I always thought about domestic violence shelters and frontline support workers, which are obviously incredibly important, and the police and so many service providers, but so are banks. If you want to seek out their services or any more information about this, go to combank.com.au forward slash DV. As I said, we have a whole campaign here at Mamma Mia called It Was Invisible with lots of information and resources and support. Even if it's not happening to you, it might be happening to someone in your life. We'll link to all of that information in our show notes. Please stay safe and much love.